by doing this and training team members to, to own this kind of DNA, you can leverage people up. And we, we say high operating leverage, where we have a small lean team that is now operating as if they're three to four times their size because of this, these practices that we're teaching. y'all so happy to have Kevin Lee with us today. He's the full founder of EMI and they invented the world's first low carb and high protein 100% plant-based instant ramen. Very, very cool indeed. I'm going to talk all about it. They've got investors from Naomi Osaka to Usher and their fans come from international DJ Kaigo to celebrity chefs like Sammy Udell. Emi is sold online and in retail. Y'all can find them on their website. You can also find them at your local Whole Foods, Sprouts, HEB, etc. Kevin and his co-founder, Kevin, have raised about $15 million to date. And he's going to tell us about how the business is going. They, Kevin himself spent about 10 years in tech as a product manager and early stage VC before Emi. He also founded an education media company called Product Manager HQ that ran the world's first and largest PM online community. Kevin, so happy to have you with us today. Welcome to the pod. Thank you so much for having me. All right. I'd like to always start with asking you in your own words, who are you? Like I've said a bunch of things, but how do you think of yourself? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I don't think I've ever also ever been asked that question. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I think the roles I play in my life right now um, primarily are a husband to my wife. We are... Mm -hmm expecting our first baby on the way um, in late March, which is extremely exciting. Um, <laughs> yeah, so soon to be father is going to be a really important <laughs> role that I'm very much looking forward to. Um, I've, I think I've wanted kids since probably I was like 12 or I don't know, one, very young age. Um, outside of that, uh, I am the co-founder of Emmy, uh, as you as you have already called out, um, which is my first foray into the food industry with my co-founder. And outside of that, I would say, yeah, just trying to enjoy my life. I, you know, funnily enough, Good people friend. always ask me, do, do you have any hobbies? And I'm like, I think my <laughs> life is, my hobbies are hanging out with my wife, Josie, and spending time on Emmy. And that's pretty much it. So, yeah. 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 And soon to be father, spending time with the kiddo. Exactly. I want to then talk about kind of the experiences that formed you growing up and what some of those were. Yeah, I think so. I was born in California, but my parents are Taiwanese immigrants mm -hmm. and they actually immigrated to the U.S. because my grandparents are in the produce industry in Taiwan. So they are farmers. They grow something called a rose apple. And I think ironically, my parents didn't want me to grow up in the same village and work on the farm like some of my cousins. But yeah. something they did have to do is when they were making their life here in America, um, they didn't, you know, they came here with um, no financial or social capital. So most Asian immigrants, what they'll do is they'll leave the children with the grandparents, um, at least for like the first year, uh, just to get their footing. So I inevitably did spend quite a bit of time in Taiwan. And and even after that first year, um, every summer and winter, I'd be back in Taiwan with my grandparents, just out in the fields, uh, helping them yeah. uh, harvest the fruit, uh, package it in newspaper, sell it to the markets. So I didn't understand back then that that would be a major influence in my life. And to tell you the truth, it's not something I really thought about until 
when, you know, the first few years of starting IMI. So one of those yeah. like easier to connect the dots moving backwards type situations. But that definitely was a very, um, you know, subconscious formative experience in my life, just getting to see that food industry from a very different lens, more from like a farming standpoint versus mm -hmm. CPG um, for listeners, that's consumer packaged goods. Outside of that, uh, even Wait, just can being... can I pause you there? Mm -hmm. That's so interesting. So understanding you would spend the summers with grandparents in Taiwan. Mm -hmm. And what was that like for you? Did you find that like a cool experience? Was it a chore for you at the time when you were growing up? So the summers and the winters in Taiwan were... I would say half of it was fun for me. It was it was definitely a very novel experience being in a completely different country. They live. My grandparents live in a very rural part of Taiwan um, called Pingdong, and it's very much like a imagine like a <laughs> you're in the middle of nowhere. It's just mm -hmm. like a you know you you may have you have a few neighbors, but it's really just farmland. And I think as a child, I did actually quite much. You know, I did enjoy just like running through the fields or we had like little rivers where I would just make paper boats out of like the calendar yeah. paper that we had. And it was just a very much like a, I was like a little country boy just running, running around and sure the mosquitoes were horrible and the summer heat was horrible <laughs> when we had to like package the fruit, but uh, I was yeah. pretty naive and I, it wasn't really a chore when I, when I think about it. Yeah. I asked because so I grew up, I spent summers in Ukraine, which is where my wow. grandmother was. And she lived in this village. And in this village, everyone had their own cow. And every like they would take turns to go herd the cows in the meadow. And then you <laughs> wow. could milk the cows, you could make your cheese. And I remember just loving it so much. I thought it was so cool. I was like, oh my gosh, I get to go out for the whole day. I get to just be a kid out and because we lived in, in the city at home in Sierra Leone. Mm -hmm. And so I was just curious because I think these experiences can hit kids differently, of course, than they do adults. And you never know how they impact you growing up. Totally. We never had to deal with livestock, which is probably a very different experience. <laughs> but I, that sounds fun when I listen, to, you know, when I hear about it. Yeah. So cool. Okay. And then I cut you off because you were going to say another experience that you had was? I think just growing up in California. So my parents, when they immigrated to the U.S., they actually ended up in Buffalo, of all places. I don't think it was very intentional. They just picked a place, mm -hmm. um, ended yeah. up there. And then during you know, the rise of Silicon Valley, they drove cross country to California where I was born. And I did have quite a bit of influence, I think, just being around, again, Silicon Valley, it was kind of the burgeoning yeah. tech scene. And so post-college, I really spent those first 10 years of my career uh, working in the tech industry. And I think my parents were actually pretty happy about that. My dad was an electrical engineer by training. And he had tried to start a few businesses that unfortunately just didn't work out in the hardware space. Um, so he calls himself like a failed entrepreneur. And uh, <laughs> now he does, you know, insurance at home, which allows him to spend time with, you know, our, our family dog and gardening. And uh, but it was it was a great experience to work in the tech industry. I think that was probably the second most formative experience. And I can talk later around how we've really brought a lot of learnings from yeah. the tech industry into what we do now in the food industry. Yeah, definitely. We'll dive into all of that. Um, okay. So then speaking of being in the tech industry, you you became a product manager in, in tech. And what was that like? And how did that transition from being a PM in tech to a VC happen? 
Yeah, I started in, so I think the, the general career arc, um, it is the way I have always described it. And again, this is one of those looking backwards type situations is when I first left college and I was, you know, thinking about what I wanted to do, I, I, I kind of oscillated between this idea of, uh, impact and scale and what I mean by that is, you know, of course you can have impact at scale, but for me, I had, for example, always loved um, teaching. Uh, this is actually something I forgot to mention as a formative moment is my father growing up always made me teach him the curriculum before any major test uh, or assignment. And looking back, I realized now that he probably didn't understand half the things I was telling him. He was just asking me questions like, why, why, why? Just to f- That's so smart un- of your dad. We should yeah, do that was... with our kids. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I, w- I keep thinking about that too with my wife. I'm like, I'll probably make him just, you know, make my son teach me everything. Like, yeah, what are all <laughs> I just hope he doesn't ask me like how to solve the problem because I think I've forgotten a lot of my you know, basic knowledge. But um, I think yeah, as a result a of doing that. a great way to test that, someone's knowledge too, right? Like, do you understand it? Meaning, can you teach it to someone else? Very much so. It's the, the Feynman technique and and I think as a result, I, I really did teach through most of my life. In high school, I actually taught a guitar of all things. And then mm-hmm. um, in college, I taught personal finance and investments. And it, it stayed core to me. And so coming out of college, I actually tried to recruit um, for the education industry for the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation um, for their education division. And unfortunately, I didn't have enough experience as an operator. So at the, you know, one of the final rounds, they told me, hey, you mm-hmm. just need to go get some operating experience. Um, at the time, uh, some college alumni of, of my university, Berkeley, had started this mobile gaming company called Kabam. Um, I didn't really know any better. I did actually grow up playing a lot of games just because mm-hmm. we moved around a lot as a child and it was the fastest way for me to make friends. So I ended up joining Kabam as a product manager and that was my first foray, just tying it all back into Mm -hmm. scale, which is you're dealing with millions and millions of users and every decision you make will affect, again, millions of people. And you have all these data points you can look at. But I think after two years there, it was really fun. I learned quite a bit and it was a really, it was a hyper growth company um, that scaled from 300 to 1200 employees in about two years. So I, and I got to work in Vancouver, I got to work in Beijing and, you know, startup teams. And as a 23 year old, it was a fascinating experience, but it didn't quite have the impact I was looking for. And so after you know some time there, I ended up recruiting back into the uh, or into the the industry I originally wanted to work for, which was education. And I was able to find a role at an education tech company called Alt School, which was a very high profile company at the time that had raised around $120 million to try to reinvent the entire education system through building software and hardware. Um, you got, it was it was crazy stuff. Things like uh, we had like a hardware division that ha- would uh, use infrared to track, you know, like basically where students and teachers were moving around the classroom so that we could like understand how students group together during, during the day and then help the teacher design like an optimal classroom environment. We had yeah. software that was personalizing curriculum for every student so that a teacher could, you know, easily, again, personalize um, the curriculum. But it was a very ambitious vision. And I think um, ultimately, I think it just kind of, we were spreading ourselves way too thin and um, the the startup didn't work out. But it was a very good experience to understand 
impact because we were, I, I just felt a lot more impact from an industry standpoint. I was getting to work with students on a daily basis. Um, but what was interesting was even there, I was a little unsatisfied because mm -hmm. our, the limits of our impact were actually with these individual classrooms. And not to mention, I was just a product manager working on a few features within an ed tech company. And all of our users, quote unquote, were actually, um, we had to run our own private schools um, because we, we had to figure out how to uh, test the software and hardware through our own private schools before we could eventually license it to public schools. And mm -hmm. you know, these private schools were very much like wealthy Silicon Valley founders, yeah. children type um, type cohorts. And not to not to say that that's like a necessarily a bad cohort. It's just it wasn't representative of I think the U.S. population. And so again, I found myself a little disconcerted. Of okay, this is a, still a limited impact. From there, that's really when I start. I jumped completely again to the opposite end of the spectrum. Opposite end of the spectrum with venture capital. Um, I thought that, mm -hmm. hey, if I could invest in companies that were good for the world, um, then you you really like are investing in these leveraged vehicles that are delivering impact. And maybe I was just telling me, myself all these tropes and these platitudes as a way to rationalize my career decisions. But, you know, I ended up that's how I kind of fell into venture capital. And um, if I had to tie the thread all back together, I think one of the reasons why I'm so excited about Emmy today is you know, we, we get to reinvent one of the world's most popular foods with a much healthier and nutritious version. And it's finally that, that middle ground of impact at scale that I've really been searching for, um, for a long mm -hmm. period of my life. And I would say that it's very much the same with my co-founder. I have to say, that's also why I'm excited about Amy, just giving more nutritious calories to folks at scale. So definitely agree with you there. I want to touch on this impact at scale. I think this is a great framework, just even for kids, folks, kids in high school, folks like graduating from undergrad and thinking about their careers. I love this framework. Why do you feel like for you, the impact piece was so important? It actually stemmed from, <clears throat> I would say, a, an existential, you know, first world crisis that I had when I was in my mid 20s. Uh, it was around that time when I was still working at uh, Alt School, the education tech company. And at the time, I had tried to do some introspective soul searching as to what was the impact I wanted to leave on this world. And at the time, I, I sort of molded myself to that startup's mission, which was to provide every child with a personalized education. And one of the reasons for that is my parents had immigrated to the U.S. really to give me a better chance at education in life and help me develop a growth mindset, which has enabled much of what I'm able to do today. And, you know, seeing the power of that, even just like with my own privilege and education made me want to deliver that to everyone else. But in, it was around that time, I actually joined this program called Hive. And it was a program I found online where they take 150 people from 80 different countries and they put them together for one weekend. And you are effectively just like, you, you don't know who your roommate's going to be. It could be someone from a completely different country. Uh, you don't know what their background is. And you really spend this weekend doing almost like a Tony Robbins-like exercise where you're trying to do a whole workshop to figure out your, your life purpose and your life's like impact on the world. And I met so many interesting people, very, very ambitious people, not from not just necessarily from like a you know capitalistic sense, but just people who really cared about true problems in this world. And one of those people I met was this guy named Ajit George. Him and his father actually started a boarding school in India called Shanti Bhavan, where 
they take one child from every untouchables uh, family. It's the lowest social caste. And they bring them into this boarding school when they're just a child and they raise them. They cover everything, food, shelter, education, all the way until they are college graduated and they get their first job. And then that child goes back to their family and breaks the cycle of poverty um, that is usually very prevalent in that in that caste system. And Ajay told me, Ajay and I had a conversation where we were sharing our notes on what we had learned from this weekend and what our impact was. And he heard me say, oh, okay, you know, you want to give a personalized education to every child. That's very admirable. However, you know, I want to give you a different perspective, which is you live in a first world country of the United States of America, where a lot of these basic needs of food, safety, shelter are, and security are, are taken for, uh, or sorry, are, are granted to most mm-hmm. people. And as a result, they're able to ladder up in Maslow's hierarchy of needs and think about things like education and growth mindset. But he said, you know, for me and my father, when we realized what was happening with some of these social castes in India, where a lot of these children, they do not have basic food, nutrition, safety, shelter. Um, The last thing they are thinking about is education. They're not going to school every day. They're just trying to have a roof over their heads and food to survive to the next day. And he told me that's why Shanti Bhavan had the mission they did of of boarding, you know, a a child and and giving them everything they needed from like a deficiency standpoint. And I didn't realize at the time that that was going to completely change my mindset around how I operated and what my impact was going to be. But it really helped me realize like, look, it's of course, it's fine to still care about personalized you know, education for children. I think that's a great mission. But there are perhaps other things lower in the rungs of social of Maslow's hierarchy that I can spend my life doing that might actually affect more people and you know help them ladder up again. And so what that ended up doing was it really pushed me to think about food in a very different way. And I think it from the the recesses of my mind and like my family being in the food industry, it it surfaced this idea that, hey, maybe I can actually have impact um, again in the food industry and provide nutrition so that people don't have to worry about that and they can survive and you know live longer and and make it to the you know the next stage where they can again think about other things. Uh, like education. Totally, totally. It's all about, like, do you have food to eat? Can you afford mm-hmm. that? Do you have a shelter, a roof over your head? Are you safe before you can afford to think of these other things? Absolutely. Well, thank you for sharing that. Should we chat about Emmy then? I want to ask you, how did you come up with the recipe for Emmy? How did you and Kevin get the ideas? Yeah, definitely. So when we were first ideating Emmy, we knew that we wanted to make uh, a low-carb product, uh, mainly mm-hmm. because... Uh, our families have really high rates of diabetes. Uh, my grandmother, for example, is pre-diabetic. And uh, K-Chan, I call him K-Chan because we're both named Kevin, <laughs> yeah. so I penned his and last name. are you name. Kaylee? I'm Kaylee. Just makes it a lot nice. easier for people. <laughs> uh, so K-Chan's family has um, very high rates of obesity. And we knew we wanted to make our product low-carb. We also eventually realized from some te- demand testing that high protein, plant-based were elements we should also incorporate into our instant ramen. But at the time, there really was no such thing as a low-carb, high-protein, and plant-based instant ramen. So wait, how did you meet? Did you know each other from a prior work experience or were you just friends? We actually worked together on the same teams back at the mobile gaming company Kabam together. And it was there that we got to know each other. We learned more about each other's family backgrounds. His grandmother used to sell noodles out of a hawker stall in Thailand, and his dad 
when his parents immigrated to the U.S., his dad ran a Thai supermarket in Los Angeles and then eventually ran a Thai restaurant also selling noodles. So I would say he more so than I actually has noodles like running through his veins, um, which is very fitting because he actually leads you know, a lot of the, the like product at Emmy and um, I'd say was very much the the innovator behind you know, our most recent versions of our noodles. But yeah. uh, in the early days, we would get together and we tried to contact food scientists um, a lot of these noodle experts. And I think this is one of those instances of, I, I don't know if it's like a ignorance is bliss kind of situation. There's probably another term for it, but a lot of them because of their expertise were unwilling to mm. work with us or believe that a product like this could exist. I think it's, it's of course possible to make something low carb or to make something high protein, but then you have to factor in a lot of the textural, like whether it's surface texture or elasticity, chewiness, a lot of these variables of a noodle um, to account for while you're trying to fit certain nutritional standards. It's very, very difficult. And so we, a lot of these experts did have biases that rightfully led them to believe this wasn't possible. So we didn't have a choice at the time. We just said, well, if, if no one's going to do this for us, we just have to figure this out. So it wasn't this like blessing of y'all haven't been doing the same thing over and over and wrote in these processes. And you can actually come in with fresh creative thinking outside of the box to the industry. Exactly. And I, it was funny because in the venture industry, for example, we often say that if you're a venture investor who comes from a particular industry, you're, it's very low likelihood you're going to actually invest in that industry just because you're already so biased. You're You've going to diligence yourself. Can go wrong. <laughs> exactly. Versus the things that can go right. So, you know, the fact that Kachin and I came from the tech industry, we had zero experience in the food industry outside of those, you know, our family backgrounds. It allowed us to just be very playful and approach it with this childlike curiosity where we would watch videos on YouTube. We would uh, read <laughs> research papers in foreign languages and just use Google Translate. It, it does. It's when, when we tell people this, they're always like, that sounds way too easy. And we said, you know, that amazing. that's because it was, I mean, to us, it, not that it was easy. It's just that, you know, if you didn't know about industry, you would probably do the same thing. You'd probably go on YouTube. You'd probably go on subreddits. You'd probably look up research papers. And yeah. then from there, you'd start to like see people's names. Like you'd be like, oh, this research paper is written by this professor or this person. Then we would cold email those people and you just start to get these contacts and um, learn that way. And you know, 200 iterations later, we we got to a a version that we were, you know, somewhat satisfied with, and that was kind of the birth of Emmy. That's amazing. It also makes me so. There have been studies, Kevin, Kaylee, Kevin, that show that <laughs> the most resilient entrepreneurs are those who approach a challenge like a puzzle or or in a playful way. And I just love mm. your example of that of that notion of. Oh my goodness, how so just like following the rabbit hole of what's interesting to you and just talking to people as you find things interesting. That's amazing. So did you use uh you used an external like manufacturer at the start? Are you still manufacturing externally or in-house? We manufacture externally. It's actually extremely okay. expensive for a startup to self-manufacture, uh, just because you typically you do have to set up the production lines. Mm -hmm. Um we do have a few friends um who do self-manufacture. Uh and you know, I think that's probably something we'll tackle down the line. But yeah. for now, we do everything overseas. Uh, we have spoken with our manufacturer. We actually have a very, we have an excellent relationship with them. Um, they want to consider doing a JV build out with us of a facility at some point in the future. 
but we're just not sure we want to take on that yeah. task right now. Okay. And then what is what are the ingredients? What is Imi made of and and how how does it come come about? So we you know, a typical noodle is primarily just refined uh, wheat flour, and it's uh, it's that gluten, and that's pretty much it. I'd say what we have tried to do is replace most of the carbs, most of these starches with plant-based proteins, fibers. So the core ingredient that we use right now is pumpkin seed protein. Um, we also use a, another type of wheat starch that's very fiber forward. And it's really the combination of these two. We still do have gluten because we, from a lot of our testing, we realize people want that familiar chew, which is very hard to replicate without glutinous bonds. Mm -hmm. So that's what we use right now. Um, our product team, um, we actually have a ramen lab in Los Angeles where our product team is constantly iterating and uh, we may, we're going to announce something soon, which, which will um, kind of switch up some of the proteins we're working with that we're re really excited about. Um, okay. But it's it's worked out well, and and then in terms of our broths, uh, we just use a you know I would say the broths are probably less a lot less R and D than the noodle itself, which is funny because everyone uh, I think everyone seems to dwell on this like plant based element, and the plant based is really obviously just the broth because noodles are already plant based. But the broths are you know you can think we use a lot of like these yeast extracts, we use non GMO like plant based organic you know, all natural ingredients, um, just to replicate the meat-based flavors you might normally uh, find mm -hmm. in traditional instant ramen. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So my husband is volunteering himself to be part of your ramen lab. He loves ramen. <laughs> nice. <laughs> and I'm happy you have like, I'm looking at your flavors. You have like a shrimp flavor. I don't eat meat. So that's my thing. I couldn't get it at the, our local stores, but we're going to get one of your six packs online. So folks, oh, amazing. You, Thank you. you should go check it out. It's healthy and nutritious and, and it's fun. Um, okay. So tell me about your production. How does your team function, the structure of the team? I, I want to talk about both like how you handle like the operations and also some of the processes that you use to streamline. I, I consider you one of the clean operations EOs that I know. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, so we, we do try to run pretty lean. Um, we have about 10 team members in the U S five international, and That's we have wild. hired. That's lean. <laughs> We've tried to hire, yeah, very, very lean. Um, I would say the thing that Kachin and I invested quite a bit of time on through the first two years of Emmy was treating the company itself as the product um, oh, to the same extent that. as we treat our product as a product. And what that really means is we've invested into a lot of the infrastructure. The We call it, you know, it's, it's the operating system of Emmy. Mm -hmm. And the operating system will include things like rituals, which um, we are a fully remote organization um, with team members all around the world. So naturally, we have to figure out systems where everyone can stay in tune on the communications front. We can have you know regular team meetings that aren't too burdensome because obviously we want to reduce meetings wherever possible. It means we invest pretty heavily into documentation. Uh, so everything you can imagine is documented. Um, and not to mention all the documentation is fully transparent to every team member. So every meeting note, regardless of if I'm meeting with an investor or someone's meeting with a product, you know, related vendor, um, all those meeting notes are centralized on a single table. We have a memos table, which is any decision that is, you know, is a critical decision. Uh, team members have to draft a long form memo 
um, that explains their thought process, you know, the, the rationale behind what recommendation of decision they want to propose. And then, mm -hmm. you know, other team members can provide feedback before that decision is made. Um, so we have a lot of documentation ready. Um, we also have processes like, for example, HPMs, which is every team member at the end of the week um, is required to send an email update of their highlights, their progress, and then me, me being like a small personal quip on like things that they did that weekend. It's just a fun way for everyone Love to get that. to know each other remotely. Yeah. And so this goes to the entire team, regardless of what department you're working in. Exactly. So everyone from our CX manager to our lead designer to our mm -hmm. senior, you know, R&D developer, everyone has mm -hmm. to do an, an HPM. And you may not necessarily understand everything that's going on in someone else's function, but having that visibility gives you a lot of context. And I think in a startup, context is everything. Um, both Keichen and I have worked for startups where the founders, perhaps rightfully at the time, needed to keep certain information confidential, but not having that context actually limited us from, you know, as individual contributors or as managers to, to be able to do our job well. And so we have always wanted to provide as much context as possible. Um, outside of the... Let me pause some you because I, yeah. I want to react to some things because listeners are other entrepreneurs, founders, people that are running their own companies and learning from what works well in what companies. I really love what you described about every meeting, every single person knows what's going on. And I'm sure you have some, like if something's very confident, someone like I'm being very vulnerable with you in our one-on-one -on -one, and I don't want people to know X, Y, Z. I'm sure that doesn't go into those notes. But why that's so great is you're really building transparency and you're minimizing kind of the roadblock that it takes to understand what everyone's working on. And at a company, the speed of communication really impacts collaboration. And when you're remote, you're not always sitting in the same office. So you lose some of that ease of figuring out what folks are working on, what the roadblocks are, how you can help. And so that's super, super helpful. I think when you tie that with understanding what everyone's goals are and the progress toward those goals and how that ties up to company goals, that can also be really inspiring for everyone, just knowing how various objectives are going, how their work directly ties into those objectives. And so I think that's such a cool practice that I just want to call out and shout out that you and Chan are incorporating. <laughs> Uh, I feel like I want to be J Cam now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, and then, oh, you said something else that I wanted to comment on, but it slipped my mind just now. It was that. Was it HPMs? Yeah, HPMs. That's such a cool way too of just building the camaraderie. And I can imagine that being on Slack where it's like on a Friday or however you implement it, where it's just a cool way where you don't need the all hands or you don't need the team meeting. And it's just a regular weekly process of, of being able to do that. I'm curious, how often do y'all meet? Is it like weekly you meet with your direct report and are you tracking OKRs at those meetings? How are you structuring meeting cadence and then tracking of what folks are working on and making sure that that keeps progressing forward? Definitely. So we do a Monday weekly team meeting, which is a way for the team to get together together. Uh, and share some items around their personal weekends, as well as share their weekly objectives. So the purpose of this weekly team meeting is not to get into any details. Um, actually at IMI, we, we, we have a terminology called L1, L2, L3. L1 is anything that is very high level, meant more for like board level reporting. L2 is like somewhat in between. L3 is like you're getting into the tactical details of whatever project is at hand. Those weekly team meetings 
we always tell people never get into anything L3. Um, that's not the purpose of this meeting. It's really L1 and L2 only. So team members report on the weekly objectives. Throughout the week, managers will meet with their direct reports. Uh, we do we take our one-on-one -on -one process pretty seriously where um, we have a specific document. It's a very lengthy document that direct reports and managers fill out asynchronously prior to the one-on-one. -on -one. And we just, I think writing is so important. Uh, one of our mm -hmm. core values at Emmy is uh, we write down our recipes. It's kind of a fun yeah. quip on like the food industry, that. but yeah. um, it forces clarity of thought and it allows the the one-on-one -on -one meeting to be extremely structured where you're not coming in and being like, oh, what do you want to talk about? What do you want to talk about? It's, hey, here are the roadblocks that I am facing as a direct report. Manager, can you help me with XYZ? Here are the professional development skills that I'm working on. Manager, can you help me with XYZ? In those one-on-ones, um, we also do a an OKR review. So OKRs are set depending on the team, either on a quarterly or a half-year basis. For example, the product ops and finance orgs typically are not sh shifting too much of their objectives and their key results. So they will do half-year planning, whereas the marketing and growth team, things are changing so rapidly in that world that we do have to do quarterly planning. And so in those weekly one-on-ones, um, we just do, um, everyone has their key results and they can kind of report on status of those results, um, you know, progress to date, as yeah. well as whether they're on track or not on track. And then this way, there really is never a surprise when it comes to performance reviews. Everyone knows where they are standing at any given time and the manager can help them. And um, it's also nice because having a documented page of every single one-on-one -on -one allows a direct report to see their progress tangibly over time, where they can quite literally go to the beginning of a quarter, click on their one-on-one -on -one document and see, oh, that's what I was working on at that time. That was a professional development skill I was trying to fix and look how much I've progressed to date. It also helps the manager from a like reporting upward standpoint, where the manager also has a million things going on, may not be able to keep track of all the individual con contributions the direct report has, has completed. And so it allows them to better uh, measure performance at the end of whatever the period is. Yeah. Amazing process. And that's the other thing I wanted to call out was the, your attention to having folks write their thoughts beforehand and then just prepping for meetings beforehand. So with the writing, like you mentioned, clarity of thought and also the reading beforehand and the prep beforehand, you can save an entire meeting on that, like the chit chat mm -hmm. of, oh, this is what I did and that's what I did. And you can just prep that before and then come to the meeting with, okay, what are the actions? How do I unblock you? How did you contribute to this problem? How are you fixing it? And how can I unblock you? How can I coach you on that? A very cool process. Those, so what I see about across these is it's tough for a lot of CEOs, operators to implement that. So did y'all start with that from the beginning or did you have to revamp midway? And if so, what, what lessons? We did start with the one-on-one -on -one doc process from the beginning because we knew enforcing this documentation and writing oriented culture was going to be really important for us. I would say a lot of this also came from my co-founder who prior to Emmy was leading the social video team over at Meta and over at Meta, it's, they also have a very documentation-heavy culture. So he kind of brought that DNA into IMI, and we just tried to build it from the ground up. Mm -hmm. I would say over time, though, we have evolved many processes. The idea of HPMs didn't come in until maybe one and a half to two years into the company, uh, along with some other things like OKRs. I'm going to steal so HPMs from you. <laughs> definitely. Please do. It's, it's a great process, um, especially for remote companies. Um, but... 
yeah, most of the culture at ME tended to tends to skew top down, uh, mm -hmm. just those foundational elements of our operating system. And then over time, we've encouraged team members from a bottoms up standpoint to contribute and be culture carriers themselves to call out when certain cultural elements are no longer working or need to be evolved based on the needs of the organization or the growth of the organization. And we, I think a lot of that depends on the leaders setting the tones. So for example, our marketing team, we run uh, what's called sprints, which is a, a process, obviously we stole from the tech industry, which is, you know, after certain periods, you're, you do like a whole planning process of like a roadmap, you have a whole backlog of items. Uh, we just did one yesterday and our whole marketing team was sitting there after completing one of these sprint processes. And um, I was just like, hey, everyone, does anyone else feel like that last 10 minutes was totally unnecessary and like a waste of time? And slowly people were like, yeah, actually, now that you say it, that felt really repetitive. And it was it's just kind of like a gentle reminder from leadership of, hey, if you as a leader are willing to call things out, it gives people permission. Hopefully you are hiring people who already are willing to call things out. But I can totally understand how the, the pressures of a of like a certain social construct may start to yeah. remove that behavior over time. So um, it was nice to just set that tone. So people are like, yeah, let's just remove that. Let's kill that. That was totally dumb. Let's not do that anymore. And yeah. we just have to remember that our company as a product is going to continue evolving just like our ramen itself. I love it. And back to your initial point, as you started, you're treating your company as a product as well and being really intentional about the culture and the behaviors that you encourage at the company. This last point you made on you calling out, hey, was that a waste of time? So important because like it's tough, right? People who work for people like your job is one of the most important things. It's your livelihood. Uh, and so it can be very stressful or feel intimidating for employees to be super honest. And so really on you as a founder, as a leader to call that out and make space, make safe space for that. You can do that via these moments, like you mentioned, Kevin, you could do that in one-on-ones with feedback and you asking really openly for feedback, taking feedback well, things like that. I want to ask one last question here, Kevin, on so back to you're operating so leanly with these 10 folks plus a few abroad. Um, if you were to boil it down, what allows you to operate in this lean fashion? These processes that you mentioned, anything else? Yeah, I think that the... So our company operating system runs on Notion, which is a tool I will forever love. It is, <laughs> yeah. it allows, it's, you know, it's really our company wiki. It's where we store all of our documentation. We have a process we use. Um, it's a third party process called Bulletproof, which allows for easy project and task collaboration amongst team members. Um, I would say outside of these elements, um, some other things that I think we do well is we do teach people the idea around like automation and delegation, um, even when they enter the company. So when I was in college, for example, um, the mine, one of the minors I did was um, at the time it was called the certificate in industrial engineering and industrial engineering is not, I, I joke that it's not necessarily true engineering, but it is a form of optimization. And really like in yeah. a lot of the classes, how they teach you is they give you these theoretical like word-based problems like, okay, you are running a factory that has these machines and these constraints. How do you optimize to, to, to maximize the output you get at the end of the day of whatever you know, product you're trying to produce? And then you are using a bunch of like linear optimization, all these like goal seeks on Excel to figure out the optimal outcome. But really the, the whole premise is just like, 
how do you optimize like a process? And I think this is, um, it, there's a book called The Goal that is one of my favorite books where it's a fictional story of a guy who has to like save a failing plant as well as save his failing marriage. And mm. um, he has to learn industrial engineering to fix this problem. And it's actually one of the mandatory books we give to every team member during their onboarding. And okay. we've, we've tried to teach everyone that like, look, most things in the workplace tend to be a process. Even if you are a creative you are probably operating under some sort of creative process, some constraints that allow you to be creative. And there, and then at that point, it's really up to you to figure out how to increase the throughput of that process, how to remove bottlenecks. And you can use that, you could do that through software like Zapier and all these you know, automation tools. You can use um, executive assistants who can mm -hmm. handle a lot of the repetitive uh, workflows that you're doing. Um, you can do that through like Loom videos where you're recording your workflows and then sharing with other team members so that you don't have to, I don't know, communicate in a certain way. Um, but by doing this and training team members to, to own this kind of DNA, you can leverage people up. And we, we say high operating leverage where we have a small lean team that is now operating as if they're three to four times their size because of this, these practices that we're teaching them. It makes me think of uh, living by design as opposed to by default. So instead of just taking mm -hmm. things as the de they default are always looking for, how can I make this better? How can I design this differently? And back to you and Kevin, literally designing these healthier noodles when everyone <laughs> didn't think it was possible. Uh, so how is the business going today? Where is the team at? What are y'all focused on for the future for the next year? Uh, business is going really well. So we... The first, I would say, two years were primarily um, also we were sold online, all direct to consumer via our own website or on Amazon. Uh, as of last year, we started entering, uh, we call it wholesale, which is the same as retail, um, like yeah. brick and mortar grocery. So we are in about 2000 groceries, like doors around the US. We are looking to expand that pretty rapidly. And I think one of the reasons we can grow so quickly is the instant ramen aisle is just so outdated in most of these, um, like Whole Foods and so on and so forth. Um, it's been 50 to 60 years since they've seen any innovation whatsoever. So when we come in with this completely novel product, it's a pretty, um, it's an easier sell, I would say, for some of yeah. these grocery buyers to understand why this needs to exist. Uh, as for where we're trying to go in the future, so we are always going to continue in. Uh, improving the core product, which means making sure the noodles, the broths are as good as they can be. Um, we do pretty extensive surveying across all of our customer base, our like private community that we run. And we're taking that feedback, passing it to our product team. We also are launching new flavors pretty regularly. And then lastly, we're launching new form factors. So we have, for example, a cup noodle version coming out um, in mm -hmm. about two months um, that we're really excited for. And beyond that, I think it's really just, yeah, getting more distribution into more groceries, into even places like college campuses, um, you know, airlines, airports, yeah. things like that. Yeah. So that's probably where we're going to stay for now. I, I think a lot of people always ask, do you want to actually branch out beyond instant ramen? And I think after a lot of decision, a lot of thinking around this, we've realized there's just so much opportunity in instant ramen that we yeah. don't really have any intention to branch out beyond that. Um, the team for now is in a very good place. We don't, we don't intend to expand headcount. 
um, for, for quite some time. And the name of the game right now is to get to profitability. We have raised quite a bit of venture capital and we should be able to get to profitability with this in the coming years. So uh, everyone is kind of heads down just getting to that point. And to get there is going to take unlocking a lot more wholesale just because when you unlock wholesale, they kind of bring in the shoppers for you. You don't have to reacquire the customer anymore. And mm-hmm. yeah, that's that's pretty much what we're doing. I mean, that's very exciting vision. And I think a lot of folks can get behind that, especially too with the health benefits of Amy. Uh, on this notion of like growing and you expanding into retail and them bringing in customers, I do want to ask you a question on how you build community because you're kind of an expert at this, Kevin. Well, okay, you're not, yeah. But you're being <laughs> humble, but you know how to do this so well. So with PMHQ, you built a big active community there. And then even before launching EMI, you had an engaged wait list. What are some of your lessons there? Maybe if you can walk us through a specific example of building community that other founders can can take away some lessons from. Yeah, I think the... So with Product Manager HQ, I would say I, I also got lucky at being in the right place at the right time. Back in... I think it was like 2013, 2014, a lot of the product management knowledge was siloed into uh, individual people. Like at the time, blogging was still really big. And so um, you had a few product managers who were blogging. You had some online Q&A websites like Quora that were still pretty big where people were answering questions around Mm -hmm, product management. I remember. But there wasn't a central destination where people could all go to just learn about product management. And so... I was a fledging product manager at the time and selfishly I was looking for a community of my own and a resource of my own. So I figured, well, why not just build my own? And so it, what it actually started <laughs> there, as that childlike <laughs> creativity <Yeah>. again. <laughs> it's definitely, I know it's, it's always uh, probably been there, but um, it, it started as a very small, um, actually it was not very innovative. I started as a blog as well. And it was just me writing articles because people kept uh, cold messaging me, asking me to do these informational interviews to help them with their product management mm. interviews. And I figured, okay, well, I cannot, I don't have time, enough time in the day. So why don't I write these, like the same thing I would tell them. And I started linking people to these articles yeah. being like, hey, I'm so sorry, I don't have 30 minutes, but here's what Talk you can read instead. Talk about impact and scale. <laughs> yeah, trying to. share this with <laughs> Yeah. So um, that's how it started. Then it turned into a newsletter where I realized People were actually like signing up for the email list. I, I wasn't sending them anything. So I just started aggregating. You know, I, I did a lot of product management reading every week just to self-learn. And mm-hmm. um, I started to just curate like the top five, top 10 uh, links that I really loved and writing a quick summary of why I loved them. And people just loved that kind of curation, the, the narrative behind why I was enjoying these. So that newsletter grew into one of the top three in the industry. And then from there, I realized people were kind of just clamoring for a community, a live community, because it wasn't easy for people to like, they could just only email me. They couldn't email each other, talk to each other. So I realized at the time that Slack was starting to pick up steam. This was still the very early days where a lot of my engineering team was starting to use Slack. And I figured, well, product managers are probably also going to be in Slack. You don't, the, the biggest thing I've, I always tell people about a community is don't overthink the platform. I think a lot of people are like, oh, should I use Discord? Should I use Circle.so? Should I use like Facebook groups? And I would say, go where your users already live. Right? You don't want to create mm-hmm. another barrier for them to enter your community. So for us, if product managers were already in Slack, 
why do a Facebook group? Because it'll just, if they did, if they were on Facebook all day, it would make them look like they were slacking at work. Um, So you get them into a Slack group. And at first I really just seeded it with a few friends in the industry, but over time, um, I would start to link from my newsletter, from the from the little blog, and just be like, hey, you know, if you want to talk with other PMs around the world and learn from product managers at other organizations, join this fledging mm-hmm. Slack community. And in the community, there are a couple of things that I think were critical. The, the first thing is you really do have to seed the conversation when you're at like the sub 100 people phase. Um, it literally means like I was in there every single day planting questions, uh, I would welcome every single person. So there's an onboarding step, which is important, which is you have to welcome each person individually and make them feel welcome. There is um, almost like an intake process where after onboarding, you have to learn a little bit about this individual. Like for for me, it was what is the company you're working at? What is like, is it a B2B versus B2C and what industry? And then like, what is your level? Like, are you like a junior, senior, lead group, so on and so forth? And I kept a little spreadsheet of all this information um, in hindsight, like I could have just done a type form and that's actually what ended up happening. It's it switched to that. And then from there, it's really about like getting engagement in the public channels where knowing the information, you know, of each member and you are like seeding the topics, you have to start just tagging people and looping them into the conversation. And from there, then you have to get members to talk to each other. And that's where you, it's almost like you're at a, you're hosting a house party, right? Like at a house party, no one knows each other. So Every time someone comes to the door, you greet them. You're like, hey, how's it going? Good to see you. Then you start to pull them into group conversations. In those group conversations, maybe you link two people together where you're like, hey, you two are working on this thing together. Why don't you two chat? It's not, again, it's not rocket science. It's just being a welcoming host. And I think that's how you get a community off the ground before members start to do this for each other. I would say the next phase is you can start to specialize the conversations because not everyone wants to be a part of the general group chat. Some people are like, I only want to talk to these people or these people. So you siphon into individual channels. From there, you have to actually um, release control as fast as possible. So you have to allow people to moderate their own channels and you see control. It's no different than running a company where you give people ownership and you say, okay, you are now in control of this channel, you own it end to end. So that means remove spammers, welcome people into your channel, like connect people together and you are delegating. And from there, that's how the community just naturally organically grows. And then you as the organizer, at that point, you're thinking about, again, organizational processes, the operating system, where are things that are breaking? How do we ensure engagement is high for every single individual channel? Do we do weekly meetings with the moderators? so that everyone is on the same page? How do we create a rewards and incentive system so that people want to graduate from like a lurker to a contributor, Mm -hmm. to a moderator, to a channel organizer? Um, You're just running a company at that point. Yeah, I love the graduating from lurker to a contributor. (laughs) And at the center of all of this, what I really heard was adding value from day one. So you were adding value Mm -hmm. from day one to folks who were curious about PM and You've been reading all of these articles and sharing them, and then they just kept you kept snowballing from there. And then the niche aspect of folks in the community all wanting the same or having a same pain point and needing the solution that you're providing. That was excellent. Thank you so much for sharing, Kevin. Lots of le- learnings in there. I want to end with coming back to all what we discussed: your growth, your journey, spending summers in Taiwan, your dad and him getting you to teach him stuff and discovering your appreciation for impact 
with education and then starting EMI and through today, what you, do you feel is most important to you in terms of the work you're doing today? And what do you want to be prioritizing in the coming years for yourself? The most important work. So the, I think first and foremost, the thing I, you know, most founders, I think, come to realize is you have to take care of the team. Um, and I know most people say like, oh, take care of your customers, but it, it actually stems to you. You must take care of your team first and foremost. Um, building a great organization, a great culture where your team is thriving, where everyone feels like they are in their zone of genius, um, mm -hmm. where we say this a lot in the interview process. We tell people when you're interviewing is no one at Amy gets Sunday scaries. And that is very mm -hmm. important to us because if you are coming into work on Monday excited, that is going to trickle. And you know, I think for, for founders who are listening, your company is a leverage vehicle for you to deliver your values upon the world. And that means that for every person you hire, they are going to be a carrier of those values that you hope to deliver to the world. That means that in the future, if they graduate, hopefully they do get, get the skills and you know to graduate, to start their own companies, to start their own nonprofits, to, to make impact. You want them to carry your values and you, you hope that you yourself are carrying great values so that you can pass those on. But that kind of impact is always going to be much larger um, than what you can individually do alone with just your one company. And so I always say, you know, hire correctly, take care of your team, make sure they're happy, make sure you are impressing the right values upon them. Um, and then you can only hope for the best. It's kind of like parenting, right? You never yeah. really know, but you just hope it's going to work out in that regard. Um, and then I think from there, all the right things will follow, right? If your team is happy, healthy, um, with the right values, they will take care of the customers guaranteed that that is just you don't need to worry about that piece. Um, and so that's really what I'm thinking about these days. And it's a very, very fun problem. Um, but yeah, that's so great. What a wonderful note to end on, Kevin. It was wonderful to have you here. Thank you for all these gems that you shared with us and looking forward to being in touch. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening. Don't forget to subscribe. And if you like what you hear, leave a review and share.